Brahma Uvacha, Lord Brahma Manasaha, born from the mind, me, my, Sutaha, sons, Yushmat, then you, Purvajaha, born previously, Sanaka Adaya, headed by Sanaka. Cheruhu, travel. Vihayasa, by traveling in outer space or flying in the sky. Lokan, to the material and spiritual worlds. Lokeshu, among the people. Bigata Spriha, without any desire. Translation, by His Divine Grace, Sri Prabhupada. Lord Brahma said, My four sons, Sanaka, Sanatana, Sanandana, and Sanat Kumar, who were born from my mind, are your predecessors. Sometimes they travel throughout the material and spiritual skies without any definite desire. Please repeat, Lord Brahma said, my four sons, Sanaka Sanatana, Sanandana and Sanatkumar, who were born from my mind, are your predecessors. Sometimes they travel throughout the material and spiritual skies without any definite desire. Two sentence purport by his divine grace, When we speak of desire, we refer to desire for material sense gratification. Saintly persons like Sanaka, Sanatana, Sanandana, and Sanat Kumar have no material desire, but sometimes they travel all over the universe out of their own accord to preach devotional service. Brahmo bhacha manasame sutha jushmat purvajaha sanakaryo cherur vihayasa lokal lokeshu vigatas priha. Lord Brahma said, My four sons, Sanaka, Sanatana, Sanandana, and Sanat Kumar, who were born from my mind, are your predecessors. Sometimes they travel throughout the material and spiritual skies without any definite desire. So to whom is Lord Brahma speaking? The demigods. And here he's telling them that these four Kumaras are born from his mind and they are the predecessors of the demigods. In other words, they appeared before all the demigods were uh, established in their places and given their different uh, administrative posts. So the Kumaras in seniority, they supersede the demigods. And they are very special in many ways. Uh, one way in which they are special is that they appear as the reason they're called Kumaras. Kumara means like five-year-old boy. So they appear as Kumaras 
and travel naked and they never age and uh, they never have any material desire. Sometimes maybe we, we may see a little child and we think, oh, that child is so sweet and so innocent. Uh, but when they hit puberty, all that is finished. <laughs> it's done. It's over. Then the trouble begins. And even sometimes before that, depending on the personality. So um, in order to remain detached from any kind of material engagement, the Kumars prefer to remain in that form as five-year-old boys. But they're not little kids. They're uh, great self-realized souls. And in this way, they're also free from material desires. They don't desire sense gratification. They're only interested in self-realization. So all of this is being explained by way of setting the scene for the incident where the four Kumaras uh, were prohibited from entering the spiritual world by the gatekeepers Jai and Vijay. And then they cursed those two devotees to take birth in the material world. And then they were given a choice. Uh, seven births as devotees or three births as demons. So they said, we'll take the three. Uh, we may be demons, but that way we'll get back to our jobs here in Vaikuntha, our service to Krishna as the gatekeepers. That much quicker. So it's interesting that they took the demon option. They prefer to take the demon option, but there is another, there's more underlying uh, story here because the Lord in each of those three births, those, those pair of great demons, the Lord killed them as part of his pastimes. So the Lord, he likes to fight also, but he just doesn't want to fight with any old normal rascal demon. He'd rather fight with his own devotees in the form of a demon. And that's more relishable for him and for them. So in this way, even though they're uh, appearing as demons, they're directly engaging with the Lord. And that is part of their devotional service. Isn't that amazing? Um, so in this way, the Lord and his pastimes are a very intricate and complex things, not some, you know, simple uh, theology of cavemen or forest dwellers, as the British originally would have everyone think. Actually, the British and the Germans. Uh, they tried to denigrate the Vedic literatures and everything in there as mythology. Just mythology and stories, old chap. And when you become advanced, then you will become Christians like us. So that was their mentality. And actually that mentality that they were exhibiting is a demoniac mentality, a brutish, uncivilized mentality. Although the British considered themselves very civilized and the Indians as uncivilized Aborigines. <clears throat> That's what they thought. Uh, however, uh, 
come back to bite the British in the arse because now there are so many Indians in England. <laughs> so they went there to conquer and now as a result they have become conquered uh, by the very people they were seeking to subvert. Very interesting, isn't it? You go to Britain now, you've been to England? So you go to England, what is the national food in England that everybody eats? Fast food, curry. It is not fish and chips, it's curry. Because of the influence of the Indian cuisine there in Britain. And as a result of that, we have so many fabulous devotees in our English Jatra, both in London and at the manor. And so many people become devotees um, from the Indian descended population uh, there in England. So Srila Prabhupada, we were hearing um, Shama Sundar's pastimes of the devotees originally going to England with like no money, nowhere to stay, didn't know anybody. And it's like a fantastic story how they established the Krishna consciousness movement. Those wild and woolly California Grihasta devotees, uh, Shamasundar and Malati, Gurdas and Jamuna and uh, Mukunda, now Mukunda Maharaj and Janaki. Um, they were kind of the free wheeling West Coast hippies who became devotees. And out of their enthusiasm and following the orders of Srila Prabhupada, established the Krishna consciousness movement very solidly in England, where the sannyas disciples of Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati had failed in the 1930s. That is truly amazing. I mean, these were erudite scholars, these uh, sannyas disciples of Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati, his leading disciples. Yet they were unable to accomplish anything substantial. They met some lords and ladies and such things, but really no tangible results of their preaching. Whereas the freewheeling West Coast Vaishnavas, who had no previous history of Krishna consciousness, who had been devotees for only a year, uh, solidly established the Krishna consciousness movement met the Beatles, and it was George Harrison who gave Prabhupada $19,000 to print Krishna book, 1970, and donated the Bhaktivedanta Manor as a campus uh, for Krishna consciousness, which has become an incredible, wonderful project. And they did a feature of that, the Bhaktivedanta Manor in the BTG last year. It was really a beautiful photographic spread of their John Mosby Festival where they get tens and tens and tens of thousands of visitors on John A beautiful manifestation of uh, Krishna consciousness. I know one devotee who she's uh, Gujarati and when she was 16 years old from London she went ran away from home to become a devotee. Her parents were not very happy about that. And then, so then she moved to Ireland a little bit out of their reach. 
<clears throat> eventually came to this country and married one Papa disciple. Her husband was my landlord in Florida, and they're my good friends. So, um, we see how Krishna is arranging everything. And it is, uh, Krishna consciousness is somewhat miraculous from the point of view when you examine uh, those of us who are Westerners, our backgrounds and the uh, cultural conceptions that generally are held dear by the Westerners uh, to talk about Lord Brahma, the four Kumars born from his mind, the demigods, Krishna playing his flute, hurting his cows in the spiritual world. For an ordinary person, a conditioned soul, in the modern world, to hear that is like, what are you talking about, man? That is just all a bunch of wild stuff. And you have this whole paradigm, this whole view with all these personalities and this whole set of physics, almost as if it were some type of uh, science fiction series in which as the series goes on, more and more is revealed about that particular fiction's view of the universe in the future. You know, they have all the time travel and the faster than light vehicles and all these technologies, teleportation and all these things. Um, of course, for me, it was very easy to embrace uh, the Vedic worldview because I was this huge science fiction fan and read like over a thousand novels and short story collections with all these uh, speculative alternative views of the universe and reality. So when I read Prabhupada's books, it was like, oh yeah, I can dig that. What a worldview, that is so cool, because I was used to uh, speculating and conjecturing about these different views of the cosmos and the ultimate truth. Although generally in science fiction, they kind of leave God out of it <laughs> because they're atheists or agnostics, pushandis. So for me, it was easy to have this uh, suspension of disbelief. Like when you watch a movie and the whole thing is a fiction or fantasy, so in order to enjoy the movie, you have this suspension of disbelief. You suspend your ordinary, even morals and worldview to embrace what the uh, creators of the movie are expressing in terms of their view of the world. And in order to get into the movie or the novel or whatever, you, you put aside your own serious scientific thought and you just get into it because it's entertainment, it's fun. So uh, Krishna consciousness is not just entertainment or just fun, although it is very entertaining and very fun, no doubt. Um, so one is able to have that suspension of disbelief in order to uh, extract the bhava from the entertainment. So theoretically, we have to have this mindset and people who come to Krishna consciousness that, okay, this, you know, doesn't 
jive with my conceptions of life, but let me just put aside my, um, my ideas and those things that I'm attached to and just hear what it's all about. And then very quickly, if you're fortunate, you begin to understand, wow, here is a very consistent um, view that hangs together extremely well. As a matter of fact, if a person is very intelligent and honest, that Vedic view hangs together better than our normal reality. And we, we can begin to understand that we've been cheated by the worldview that we've been given by our parents and our educational system and our society. That we've been cheated because it's bogus. Because there's something that's better, a better understanding. So that takes initially some amount of faith in order to cross that chasm between the uh, mechanistic conditioned worldview and the liberated spiritual worldview. It's not always an easy chasm for uh, people to cross. So therefore, we have a, some amount of attrition in our movement. Uh, new people who come and they seem all fired up, like I, I, there was one boy that was coming, Noah. And when he expressed his realizations, he wanted to be Krishna conscious, he wanted to advance spiritually, and he was coming regularly, he was chanting on the beads, and he was a student and working student at UA. And then all of a sudden, poof, he was gone. Wow, what happened to Noah? Well, he was a working security up at the Ross, a few blocks up the street, and we ran into him up there. And he was, <clears throat> you know, stoned on the job. So it was kind of clear what happened to him. You know, intoxication, a girlfriend, his, uh, his roommates, his association, and that all, uh, his faith wasn't strong enough to survive that sensual onslaught, and he fell back into his old lifestyle. Although originally, when he came, he was um, dissatisfied with his, the status quo of his material existence, and he wasn't happy he knew it. So that happens if one's faith is not strong enough. Uh, of course, Srila Prabhupada informs us very nicely that um, faith is created by the association of devotees. <coughs> so it is by the association of devotees initially, <coughs> and that association includes reading Prabhupada's books and understanding the philosophy that we began to gain some traction in Krishna consciousness. Um, <clears throat> of course, there are extraordinary cases of devotees who in their previous lives had come to a certain point, and in this life, the second they came in contact with the Krishna conscious movement, <coughs> boom, they were on. 
Especially in the old days, it was like that. People would come to the temple and they would never leave. <clears throat> Remember in Atlanta, <clears throat> one girl came to the temple and she was actually looking for like the Shivananda ashram or something. And somebody just told her that the temple was there. She came to the temple. She never left. <clears throat> She's a devotee in the latch right now. So, oh, thanks. Thanks for noticing. So to um, be able to cross beyond our mechanistic worldview and our attachment to sense gratification, to become Krishna conscious, it is no small thing. Uh, and not everyone will do it. The Christians have a saying, many are called, but few come, something like that. So, um, you know, we try our best to spread Krishna consciousness and preach. But we know that many people, they will appreciate Krishna consciousness. They will appreciate Prabhupada's books, but they won't take a leap of faith who was it that came up with this term, leap of faith? Kierkegaard or something like that? One of the European philosophers. The leap of faith, which we've all taken here, is that we said, okay, this Krishna consciousness makes so much more sense than my pitiful sense gratification life and what's going on in the world around me. So let me... Let me jump across that chasm and embrace this philosophy and lifestyle and, pra and let me practice Christian consciousness. Of course, it's not a blind leap of faith, uh, which the non-devotees think that we have all taken a blind leap of faith. There's a difference between blind faith and reasonable faith. So our attachment to Krishna consciousness is not blind, but it's based on philosophical understanding uh, and some personal realization. Pratyak means direct perception. So Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita, direct perception of the self by realization. Pratyak savagamam dharmyam this way of life of Krishna consciousness. Shushukam kartamabhya. There's a taste there, a taste of happiness that's far better than any material happiness. Rasavarjam rasopyasa paramdhrishtva nirvartate. Paramdhrishtva, a higher taste, a higher vision uh, that we experience. That is more convincing than simply philosophical understanding. But philosophical understanding is important also. Which means that we should not be uh, merely sentimental in our attachment to Krishna consciousness. Sentiment is all right, but it also has to be backed up by what? Who can say? Philosophy. Philosophy, yes, that's right knowledge, 
transcendental knowledge, uh, which is gained by hearing. Hearing, reading, studying, hearing from devotees. Um, that, ele that elevates the conditioned soul past the material platform, that purification by hearing. Therefore, we have Bhagavatam class. Therefore, we read Prabhupada's books. Therefore, as Krishna says in the 10th chapter of Bhagavad Gita, we discuss Krishna consciousness amongst ourselves. So like one devotee quotes a verse to another devotee, another devotee says, yeah, 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 I heard that. I know that verse. I learned that when I was in New Bhakta. You know, come on, man. No, not like that at all. But let me relish that content, that spiritual content. Um, and let me also relish the intention of the devotee who delivers that as well. Because that intention is not motivated by sense gratification. That's pure Krishna consciousness. So Krishna says that devotees, they, they become very blissful. And they become enlightened by enlightening one another and conversing Krishna Katha, topics about me, Krishna says. So, that is the nature of the spiritual process, that all the different aspects of Krishna consciousness reinforce one another based upon this initial principle of Sadhu Sangha, devotee association. So therefore, <coughs> it is an essential feature of our practice of bhakti, that we remain tightly packed up in the association of devotees. Uh, that doesn't mean that we can't or don't interact with the world, but we don't take shelter of persons who are not Krishna consciousness. We don't give our heart to non-devotees. For example, you know, you may say, okay, well, I'm not giving my association, my, my, I'm not taking the association of a non-devotee. I'm preaching to them. Very good. But then when they say, oh, this is so cool. Hey, you want to come with me down to the bar? You know, go watch a movie, hang out, find some chicks. No, of course not. That is, that is foolishness. That would be taking their association. Giving the association to them on the basis of Krishna consciousness, that's the order of the spiritual master. That's what we do. We preach Krishna consciousness. So that you have shelter there. But then to take shelter in some kind of non-devotional association, which means non-devotional activities, or in other words, the activities of sense gratification, then you lose your edge and you damage your faith. So, when we say faith is created by the association of devotees, we also understand that that faith can be disturbed or even destroyed by the association of non-devotees. So one has to be very expert and intelligent. Actually, um, one has to become very expert and intelligent to be Krishna conscious. That is a requirement. That is a symptom of the great devotees. They're very expert and they're very intelligent in the matter of Krishna consciousness. And in all other matters, Srila Prabhupada exhibited himself as very expert in all things 
I mean, devotees uh, would ask Prabhupada all kinds of questions. He would provide herbal remedies and uh, marriage advice and medical advice and uh, diet, lifestyle advice to his you know, fledgling neophyte disciples, especially in the beginning of the movement. Because he was so expert at everything. He was just an expert, living entity, empowered, and like beyond just intelligent, totally super intelligent. Just read Prabhupada's books and you'll, you can understand how brilliant he is. He's completely brilliant, beyond brilliant. Brilliant, empowered by bhakti. That in Sanskrit, that's called bhakti vedanta. That's how he got the name, bhakti vedanta. Because he's he's expert in Vedic knowledge. Vedanta means anta means the end. Vedanta, the end of knowledge. He's expert in the topmost knowledge. With the uh, perspective of Krishna consciousness and bhakti, and therefore his god brothers gave him that name. Uh, they called him uh, Kavi because his writing was so fantastic, and Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati really loved. Uh, Prabhupada wrote on Vyasa Puja poem, Adori, Adori, always happy day. And he loved it so much. And he told his uh, disciples who were printing his magazine, publish that and publish anything he writes. And so they began to call him Kavi because he was so expert. And expert is also one of the 26 qualities of a devotee. So, uh, Srila Prabhupada was expert par excellence. He was the expert amongst the experts. What is the Sanskrit word for that? The expert amongst the experts. Prabhupada. That's the name Prabhupada. Amongst all the Prabhus, the elevated Vaishnavas, they all take shelter at his lotus feet. Prabhupada. So he's the topmost Prabhu amongst all the Prabhus. He is the most expert amongst all the experts. And generally the Vaishnavas are expert. So, um, to become expert in hearing and chanting, this is no small thing. But it is something that we should all aspire for to the best of our ability. Someone may have more ability, someone may have less. Someone may have more lifetimes of punya in their account than someone else. But that's all right, it's not like a competition. It's like we're competing to see who's you know, more Krishna conscious. But what we would like to do is make all devotees more Krishna conscious or, or give the facility for all devotees to become more Krishna conscious through uh, enthusiasm and loving exchanges amongst devotees and catching up the spirit uh, to learn Prabhupada's books as far as possible and to discuss amongst ourselves as far as possible <clears throat> the conclusions of Krishna consciousness. Now sometimes that may seem a difficult task for example, in our little temple here, um, 
there's a great emphasis on cooking prashadam and maintaining beautiful facility for guests to visit. We're receiving guests all the time, especially now during the gym show. Um, so one may get caught up in the service, the practical service. And that's good. We want to, Prabhupada wanted us to work hard and serve Krishna. Uh, that is required. Uh, but then also there's a special mercy that comes from that surrender of working hard for Krishna to the best of one's ability, especially in the matter of preaching or spreading Krishna consciousness. That's explained in the Bhagavad Gita. Krishna says, there's no one more dear to me than that a devotee who tries to spread Krishna consciousness, especially to the other devotees and to the non-devotees in general, to make devotees. So that's right, I mean, that's right at the end of the Bhagavad Gita. So surrender to me is the cream, but the cream de la cream is to preach Krishna consciousness. And that requires so much practical endeavor. And so we have a real taste of that here, that practical endeavor. So many things are going on. The trash, the recycling, the cleanliness, the pots, the plumbing, uh, the decorating, the organizing. There's so much that goes into that. It's no small endeavor to try to uh, present Krishna consciousness. But there's no loss or diminution in this endeavor. Indeed, even a tiny bit of advancement that we can make on the path of Krishna consciousness saves us from what? Greatest fear. Yes. Thank you. And now someone else, what is that greatest fear? Taking another birth in some body other than a human body. We've come this far, we've gotten to the human form. But to admit, to uh, lose that opportunity and go back down again into the species, the cycle of birth and death, that's, uh, that's scary as heck. So but anyway, all the devotees here are guaranteed already not to lose that form. Don't worry, you won't take birth as the birds in the aviary. Rather, the birds in the aviary will be the next generation of devotees here in the temple because they get so much prashadam. I mean, they're feasting on fruit and rice and salad. They have to, someone said to me, I was near the aviary and some guests were there. And so their thing was, you know, how can you cage up the birds? And I said, well, you don't understand how, what kind of life these birds have. These birds have the life of Riley. They are eating so well. And sometimes, like one of the love birds will get out, and, but they don't go far. Matter of fact, right away almost, they're like trying to get back in. <laughs> Where's my Prashadam? <laughs> Where's my friends? So, 
you know, I thought that was a rather uh, not elevated comment from their point of view, but New Age people are like that. You know, everything be free, all that kind of thing. Everything's beautiful. I keep the birds in the cage. <clears throat> There's even been people that come here and try to steal the birds. <laughs> try to get in the cage and steal the birds. We had to keep a lock on it. Keeping a lock on the bird cage, that comes under the category of expert. Expert management. Keep a lock on there. All right. So those are the comments based on this verse and any other comments or realizations. And if you don't raise your hand, then I'm going to go around the room and call on everyone to say something. Yes? These, uh, these birds are also the rescue birds. We, we wouldn't take birds from the wild. Like these birds are already conditioned. Being caged, they can't live. Yeah, they're tame. They can't live on their own outside because they've been conditioned. Yeah. They're the rescue birds. <clears throat> That's a good point. Yeah, Shankar Priya. Uh, I came in late, so I wasn't wanted to hear the beginning of your lecture, but you mentioned something very important about hearing. So this is um, this very uh, most important thing, Shavan Kirtanam. Um, he, he plant the bhakti-lata, the spiritual master plants the bhakti-lata in the heart of the devotee. The watering process is shavan kirtanam. So uh, this is the foundation. Prabhupada said that there's a house next door and there's a temple. And someone can say that we're doing the same thing. But uh, if the devotee is engaged in Krishna's service, and the other people are working to support their family and not being engaged in Christian service at all, then it becomes mundane. So to keep this process of Shravan Kirtan alive is to keep our own spiritual life alive. Otherwise, it becomes karma yoga. We're not really doing our devotional service. Right. To understand that we're... But for some people, that's karma yoga is as far as they'll be able to go. Well, that, that's not a bad thing. Yeah, because we, we have that here. We've got Joe the Carpenter, and we have other devotees who are... This is wonderful, but to, we ever, this is a love trip. We want to be in love with Krishna. We want, to be, we want that joy that is natural in the soul to become awakened. So uh, that's what we are striving for, and that's what we have to work for, and that's just by hearing from the pure devotee and encouraging us to chanted the holy name of God, which is the Yuga Dharma. So I appreciate that you brought that topic up. Yeah, and Sri Prabhupada hasn't made it easy because we have to do both. We have to hear, but we're not Bhajan Anandis, go off in the corner or somewhere in a little hut and only do Bhajan, but we have, Prabhupada's given us so much work to do. That's true. And speaking of watering, we have great realization of that here in the desert. Because if you don't water the plants, they die. That's it. And it doesn't take long, especially here in the summer when it's 115 or whatever. So that's that's something we can see practically, how you have to water the plants to give them nourishment. So the same way our, that's a very nice point, thank you, that our bhakti has to be nourished and watered by uh, 
Shravanari Shuri Titi Kariya who died. Yeah, so that watering process of hearing nourishes our bhakti, along with association of devotees and hearing together. Actually, that hearing becomes more potent uh, in assembly, just like kirtan becomes more potent uh, in assembly with more devotees. It becomes more potent. One more, one more point. Yeah. Uh, I heard Srila Prabhupada say the other day on the tape. He said, chant Hare Krishna and do a little service. It's, it, it's not that Prabhupada was so passionate, work yourself to death. And he, in fact, he wrote a letter one time to Sansaru telling him, tell Jarani she does not have to get herself sick to prove her love to Krishna. Yeah. So this moment of passion about working yourself to death. That is not what Prabhupada is saying. That's not what Bhakti Yoga is. We yeah, there's a balance. To, there's a balance. We want to work hard for Krishna, but not kill ourselves so that, oh, I have no time to chant, I have no time to do, you know, to read, to hear from Prabhupada. Yeah, one devotee who was in charge of the press in the old days, they told Prabhupada, yeah, he's doing a great job on the press, but he's not coming to Mangalarti. Prabhupada said, stop the presses. He must come to Mangalarti. Now, for Prabhupada to say, stop the presses, you know, what was more dear to him than printing books and distributing them, right? Stop the presses. He must come to Mongol Arctic. <laughs> so, in that way, he's emphasizing the importance of a spiritual regimen as well as one's practical work. Okay, anyone else at all? No? Redanga? Attrition. You use the word attrition, and I forget what context, but if you could... Define the word and repeat that part of the Attrition class. means, I'm using it in the context of when someone becomes a devotee and then they go away. So what does the word attrition actually mean? It means losing. An attrition rate is a rate of loss. Sometimes it's used in corporate America. You know, like in the military, they get people to sign up and then, you know, they may blue from the military. So that's attrition. Or in a corporate culture, they hire new employees and train them, and then they no longer work for the company. That's attrition. They have to hire and train new people, and it costs money. So they want to keep the people they hire. It's the attrition is the opposite of retention. That can also take place in the mind of a devotee. You can have retention of Krishna consciousness through hearing and chanting. You can have attrition through non-hearing and chanting non-practice. So there's retention and attrition. We want to keep the balance on the retention side. Okay, so we're a little bit over time, but not bad, considering that we're on Jim's show schedule now. So thank you all very much. Shri Prabhupada Ki Jai.